Let's get ready to rumble! Oh, alright. We are recording there. Hello and welcome to Netflix vs. Cinema, the podcast that this week is post-Oscars. Trying to figure out if our feelings have changed as bef- before the Oscars. And also, um, apologies, my name is Tosin, I'm the host, and I have a baby in the background, and she will be joining in. We just have to deal with it. This is life now. This is what my life is now. <laughs> joining me, as always, on the Isle of Wight is Sharon Bolin. Hello. And joining us for the next month, at least, is London correspondent Holly Nestling. How are you? Hello, I'm very well and delighted to be here. Yes, yeah, we're great. It's well, we're happy to have you on the. Sh- we're happy to have you on the show. We know that you've been on the show before, but we're happy to have you coming in and being part of the regular cinema versus Netflix thing, or Netflix cinema. So, what we usually do on this show is that we usually go to the cinema, watch a couple of things, stay at home, watch a couple of things, rate them, weigh them up, rate them all out of five, and see where has the money been better spent this week or this past period. Now, um, so um, Holly, what we as we've explained just before we hit record, what we do is that we might have seen more than one thing in the cinema. We might have seen more than one thing at home, and nowadays, usually, you have seen loads more at home because it's just loads more to see. But we will pick one thing that we have seen this week that we will bring forward because if not, I actually I, I did some math the other week, and I said, on average, you might see about one thing in the cinema each week, right? But at but at home. Oh, you've run out of food. Sorry. Okay, hang on a second. Hang on a second while I just feed my boss. So you might have seen one thing oh, one thing at cinema, but there's so much more you can see at home on Netflix. And therefore, because you can see so much more, there's so much more quality you can see on Netflix. So if we didn't limit it, Netflix would win every week because we are... We, because it's So we have said, right, three things. Usually three things if there's three of us, three things in the cinema, three things at home. And now we actually have three things of each one of them. So let's go through the cinema first of all. What have we seen at the cinema? Sharon. I saw the cinema Phantom of the Open. Phantom of the Open. Good stuff. Holly, what are you bringing from cinema this week? Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile. And I saw Michael Bay in Ambulance doing his Michael Bay stuff. And uh, and at home on uh, at home on TV, what have we seen, Holly? Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, was, you said Holly, didn't you? So, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, let's go with Holly. Yeah. I've uh, finished finally the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age, cool, good stuff. Uh, because obviously we have a. If we're going to bring a TV show, we say you have to finish the season that you're watching before you bring it onto the show. Because it's not fair to put an unfinished story up against the film. And 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 Sharon, what have you seen? I've seen on Netflix a Bridgerton season two. Oh, look at that! Look at oh, we're being all topical. And I have seen Turning Red, Turning Red on Disney Plus. Right, cool. So let's kick off. Let us kick off, and I will kick off. I'll give ourselves five minutes. I will set a timer, which I may forget to set up. So <laughs> just to try and give us some sort of order on this thing. Um, let's see. We have a f- a five minutes on ambulance, and so. Five minutes of ambulance, I'll go now. So Ambulance, this is a film directed by Michael Bay. And when I say Michael Bay, what is the first thing that comes to either of your minds? A mess. <laughs> Transformers. <laughs> a mess, a mess, Transformers. And in the last couple of years, those two things have meant the exact same thing. <laughs> slightly odd, possibly slightly abusive relationships. Not the easiest person to work with. Well, yep, yep, yep. People have said that he does have a, he does have one of those onset reputations of being a bit of a tyrant, and um, um, but people still keep working with him. So, well, well, who knows? Who knows? Until the inevitable scandal and the inevitable cancelling that happens, who knows? So, but okay. So this is Michael Bay going back to his smaller film, so to say. In other words, he doesn't have big, massive robots punching each other in the face. And this is ambulance, which is, and if you ever see the, if you see the word ambulance written on the poster, it is stylized in such a way that it says ambulance, but the LA in ambulance is highlighted. So I guess that the film could be LA ambulance or ambulance LA, which, which raises the terrifying prospect that Michael Bay might, might turn this into a franchise where he does ambulance, New Orleans, ambulance, New York, (laughs) which, so this is, and for a Michael Bay film, it surprisingly actually has a plot. Because usually it's just kind of like the plot is just a, it's just an excuse for the action, which is the stuff. 
<laughs> Sorry, baby in the background. Which is the stuff that Michael Bay is known for. Hang on a second. Get you your water. So Michael Bay is known for the action. That's what he does. And this, um, but this has a surprisingly sort of like real strong core of a story. You have Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who play brothers. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II was adopted into Jake Gyllenhaal's family when they were kids. And when they grow up, they've grown apart. One of them is a Marine, so Yaya Abdul-Mateen is a Marine. Jake Gyllenhaal has become a career criminal. The Marine is having trouble with his, because his wife is sick and needs to, um, needs a cancer operation. But he doesn't have the money to pay for it because of the American system and insurance won't cover this and won't cover that. So he goes to his brother to ask his brother for some money. And his brother says, I've got something better than some money for you. I've got a job. Just follow us along at the last minute onto this thing. We're going to go rob a bank. There's going to be like $8 million in it for you. And so he gets talked into where he thinks he has no choice. He goes along on the job. The job goes disastrously wrong. I mean, I mean, this job goes so disastrously wrong so quickly. It makes you wonder is this guy actually a good career criminal? Because the, 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 the heist seems so poorly planned and falls apart so quickly. It looks like a couple of guys who walked into a bank and thought, yeah, 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 we'll rob the place. Everybody on the floor. <laughs> yes, Kemi, that is it. It was it was that silly. It, it was, and so... It's not a free guy-esque bank robbery. It is a free guy-esque bank robbery. It's essentially, it feels like, that's exactly what it's like. It feels a little bit like Jack Gyllenhaal and his gang were, walk, were playing a video game, walked into a bank and thought, oh yeah, let's rob this place. It all goes to pot. <laughs> it all goes to pot. And as they're trying to escape, they hijack an ambulance that has um, Isaac Gonzalez's paramedic in the back of it. And then the rest of the film ensues, which is just a long car chase. It's a long car chase all over L.A. It is very, very reminiscent of speed. Very, very reminiscent of speed. There's even lines in it that goes like, oh, no, we don't stop for anyone and all that. So it's, it's very going all around. Now, the, my thing with this film is it's Michael Bay doing his action stuff. And it is actually quite well done as an action film it's quite well done it isn't overblown like the transformers films or it isn't as overblown as the transformers films they are even though they are shots of this where you could swear because it's a car chase and all these cars zooming around you're like that looks like he's aping transformers especially because in the first transformers film there's a transformer that turns into a police car and all the police cars in this film look like that transformer <laughs> so so there's bits where you feel like Michael Bay is referencing himself and he actually overtly does it because there's two other Michael Bay films that get mentioned in the script of this film so there is a bit where you just feel like he is patting himself on the back he's having fun and he doesn't care whether you are but, but he is having fun <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I, I'll have to watch it again to check out but I honestly don't think the camera ever stops moving in this film the camera just keeps, if you have troubles with seasickness, avoid this film. Because the camera just keeps moving, zooms around the screen, zooms up over things, goes under bypasses, up and down the sides of buildings, doesn't stop moving. And this is really, there's bits of this where it feels like this film is a, lo is a love letter to L.A. Like Michael Bay loves L.A. and he's shooting L.A. The way he shoots L.A. you're like, hang on, I thought we we're supposed to be focusing on some people in an ambulance. But it's like, oh, it's all about this. So all in all, I would give this film a three out of five. I think, I think a scene as the last thing we saw from Michael Bay. Okay, well, after I was going to say Transformers, but that isn't actually true. The last thing we saw from Michael Bay was the film on Netflix called Six Underground, which is terrible. <laughs> Did Shawnee like it? No, Shawnee hated it. Yeah, he did as well. There's another one that you didn't agree on, but that wasn't that one. That's oh, no, it wasn't that one. No, but Sean and I agreed on Six Underground. It was a heap <laughs> of nonsense. Now, <laughs> is, is it so bad that I should watch it or so bad that I should pretend it doesn't exist? Oh, you see, no, no. Uh, what, what? Oh, Six Underground. Yes. Oh, oh, Six Underground is so bad that you should watch it because you will not believe it can be that bad you will not believe that people have have put some highly skilled people have put their skills towards something that has turned out to be such a mess i mean none of the action in that film is coherent and this film has a little bit of that problem some of the action is hard to follow is why are you going there why are you going when are you just going there why now and you feel as if if you know la 
if you know LA, then you it might make more sense. Oh, we're going to drive along the LA River. Oh, we're on the 110 freeway or something like that. But apart from, but if you don't, you're just thinking, hang on a second. How did you get out of there? How did you go over there? How did you get out of that dead? How did you get out of the situation? That makes no sense. That requires a massive last of concentration. So <laughs> it's, and it's, but, and there's all these bits where it's kind of like, you know, it, it is very Michael Bay to be like, oh yeah, the, the, the police, the military. Oh, oh look, oh look how cool we are. This is, this is America's contribution society and all that. So there are shots of it that could be accused of being sort of like, you know, military fetishizing. But all in all, I think it's not as bad as his recent efforts. Definitely way better than Six Underground. Definitely better than the last couple of Transformers movies like with that, that he had a hand in. And I would give it a three out of five. So three out of five for Ambulance. And so now we go over from um, we go over from cinema and we go over to the Netflix side of things. And Holly, you're up. You're um, up. Yes, you're up with okay. the guild. You're up so, with the Gilded Age. So the Gilded Age. What, all I've seen from this, I've seen adverts on Sky and stuff, and they keep seeing they keep talking about from the creators of Downton Abbey, but American seems to be seems to be the general gist of it. So tell us, is that what the Gilded Age is? Well, so first off. It's not, I'm afraid, on Netflix. It is on Sky. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, okay. We but, must. We, you know, we, should, we, we should say this. When we say Netflix, we use that as a catch-all term yes. for I, at home, on your couch, streaming. Yeah. I just feel I should apologise specifically for Sky on the basis that it's the most expensive way. <laughs> um, so the, the, it is, the, the base background you have is a beautiful, beautiful New York looking beautiful in the late 19th century. And it begins with a young woman from not New York, I cannot be more specific than that, whose father has just died and lo, the money is gone and it's all rather dreadful. And this very genteel young woman finds herself in a difficult situation. And she therefore writes to her rather wealthy aunts in New York and says, something a little bit more erudite than gosh I'm poor now but that is the gist of it and on her way to New York she at New York City she is at a train station um, she has received some advice from a you know attractive nice young lawyer who has helped her establish that she is now poor and at the at the station she somehow as her um, as her train is coming in her handbag disappears who knows what happens up to it? And she looks dreadfully, dreadfully distressed and she tries to get on the train. But the train conductor will have none of this because he won't take people without tickets. A reasonable position, frankly. Um, so the trauma, the trauma. And a lovely um, young African-American woman happens to be there and takes pity on impoverished white, white girl in very fancy clothes and offers to buy her a train ticket. Yep. And, you know, impoverished, attractive white girl who, by the by, is the daughter of Meryl Streep and, you know, very oh. good, frankly, as a as an actress, oh. actor. Um, Maybe says, I, thank you. Uh, and um, finds herself on the train, but not in not in the fancy carriage with all the other white people. So she has to deal with the shock and trauma of, you know traveling like a normal person <laughs> and they get to new york and off they head in the rain um and try to get you know lovely african-american girl to her family in brooklyn but lo there is no ferry and it's all you know quite traumatic so off they go and stay with um with uh, you know impoverished girls family i honestly can't remember her name marion we're going to go with marion okay. and lo they get there and initially you know delightful African-American girl, name I also don't remember, is ushered down into the servants' quarters, but then she is taken up for, you know, coffee with the nice, wealthy family uh, who consists of um, Christine... Christine Baranski. Thank you. Uh, who is a widowed, um, very, very wealthy uh, upper New Yorker who comes from a family of wonderfully wealthy upper New Yorkers uh, and is the uh, the sister of impoverished, overspending father. And uh, also probably one of the only reasons I might watch this show. And is superb. <laughs> and though ensues conversation and everybody suddenly realises, you know, after 24 hours of staying overnight, that, um, that you know, young, thoroughly capable, incredibly bright 
um, African-American woman will make an excellent um, secretary to um, lovely Christine. And complexities ensue with upstairs and downstairs relationships where everybody's a bit racist. Don't quite know what they're doing with themselves. I know it's what what racist? No, you shock me. (laughs) In the late nineteenth century, the U.S. was pretty much as racist as it is now. It, I know, could knock me over with a feather. So we have our very snobby uh, old school family, and then over the road are the newcomers who have made vast quantities of money. And uh, Madam of the House is a desperate rather delightful in many ways social climber who wants to be accepted into new york society okay and you know does everything she can but of course old new york, new york society look at new money and go oh you're really not our sort of people we don't even want to make eye contact with you let oh, okay. alone enter your home oh okay now uh, um for everything you've said so far this sounds like that kind of show that can get into this where you get into this oh. and get to the upset downstairs and the haves and the haves nots and all that does it warrant the downton abbey but american comparisons i've never really watched all downton abbey so i think sort of i think it probably does have a bit of that upstairs downstairs balance but Ultimately, and then you've got, you know, the, the wonderful, you know, wonderful women who have, you know, not not quite done right in life, so we don't really approve of them. Mm-hmm. There's those sorts of layers. It has a Henry James feel, except not being as good as Henry James. All right. Um, but still, a very enjoyable watch. It does, it does better with some bulk viewing, even though they're long episodes. It does better for the story arc if you just sit down and go, well, that's many hours of my life spent, but I can really follow what's happening. And, you know, there are delightful young men and interesting relationships that are not entirely honest. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the sort of the, you know, there's a, there's a touch of homosexuality yes. in there. Yes. Which, heaven fend, and possibly the suggestion that people have mismatched social classes. Oh. Like each other. Oh, all right. And okay. So, it's it's you know there's it, there are elements that are sordid there are elements that are exciting there's some good morality in there we're disappointed in people we are delighted by people there's good and bad in everyone okay so all that goes on question yeah. question how many stars would you give it it's a solid three i enjoyed it i will watch series two no doubt could even be a three and a half because i will definitely watch series two um, they did a good enough, um, you know, sort of cliffhanger ending. All right. Well, so yeah, you're definitely pulled in, and you don't think I have just completely wasted my life watching this. I okay. watched the first two episodes. Is it worth me going back and persevering with it? Because I, yeah. I sort of dipped my toe in, and I got a bit like, oh, I'm not sure if I can be bothered. I felt exactly the same. I think I made it to three episodes, and then went, yeah. Uh, but found time on my hands and couldn't figure out what else to watch. And so I thought, well, I might as well. And then got really hooked and I binged it all. The Gilded Age just going, well, I'm here, you're here, might as well yeah, do something exactly. with it. <laughs> Is it brilliant? No. Is it Henry James? No. Is Henry James always all that? Well, that can be open to debate. So, <laughs> in the costumes, because I know I've, I've, there's a writer I follow who said there's some worth dresses that are referenced quite almost recreated, and there's some other sort of styles of that period that they've really faithfully recreated some of the gowns. So I'll be quite interested to see how they've done their costuming. The costuming is absolutely stunning. Uh, and a lot of the architecture and the interior design is beautiful, breathtaking beautiful. And you get that, you get a wonderful juxtaposition between, you know, old, old, you know, discreet money versus, you know, the nouveau, Palatial Grecian French combinations that sort of knock, knock your socks off. Would you want to live there uh, in North? Reinvestigate okay. it then. All right, see now, now Sharon, you know, you know, I love Sean and I miss Sean and all that, but this is what <laughs> I did. I decided, like, you know, we should get you some sort of like, you know, th- these are the kind of conversations you couldn't have with me and Sean. Let's talk about, like, you know, worth dresses. What is that? But. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> all right cool so now we're gonna go over to cinemas we're gonna go to cinemas and sharon if you can tell us about phantom of the open while i run off and go get a, an extra drink for a very very thirsty young lady <laughs> over here so sharon take it away phantom of the open phantom of the open phantom of the open is based on a true story it's one of these quirky british films that um seem to be have become almost like a trademark quirky British films, so based on a true story that no one's ever heard of, um, but if you delve deeply enough into maybe the archives of like South Today or North West Today, you may have found the original story for it. And this is a story of a gentleman called Morris Flitcroft in, who um, was watching, was in, in the early, late 70s during that whole t- turbulent time of social unrest um, and the in- industries was beginning to be in that decline. And he had he was like a third generation worker on the docks at Barrow and Furness. He was a cra- train, uh, crane driver. And he was, that was his life. And sort of the, the 80s, are, they're not, they're, it's like early 70s, but you can see that the change is coming where they are going to be like scaling down and he knows that his son is like becoming to management in on the docks and so they know that the shipyards that were once the employers of the town that way of life is disappearing and all his mates have got together and said that we need to find a new dream we need to find a new um we need to maybe look around for more jobs and his mate says or he says to his mates you know well you could have your own irish pub you like drinking and someone else you can you know, follow your dreams. So just follow your dreams. And then that evening he has a sort of epiphany where it's a combination of like a dream or a vision or something. But he basically has got a brand new colour telly and he's watching television and then the golf comes on. And then that night he has this this dream where he sees himself like sort of ascending into the stars and soaring above the world. Um, and then the moon turns into a golf ball. And so he basically says, like, his future is in golf. And so he asks the question, um, um, you know, what's, you know, I'm going to, that's it, I'm just going to become a golfer. I am going to enter the British Open. And then he writes off to someone to say, how do you go about entering the British Open? And thinking he's like a small child, they say, well, actually, you have, thank you, young Morris, you have to write off to... Um, to this sort of the, the committee in Scotland who will then admit you to being able to to, to take part in the British Open Golf Championships. So in fact, despite never actually ever having played a round of golf on a golf course before, he successfully enters himself into the British Open. And he actually practices in the nearby park. He practices in the local golf club after dark because they won't let him in as a member because you've got to be on the waiting list and be nominated by a committee member. He practices on the beach. He practices anywhere he can. But And he buys himself like a cheap set of golf clubs. And then he basically turns up to take part in the British Open. And it's not a spoiler to say that for someone who has never played golf on an actual golf course before... He doesn't score well. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Okay, first of all, you're trying to tell me that in in nineteen early early twentieth or early whatever early. century America, there's racism, and now a guy who's never played golf before doesn't do well at the Open. You shock me. This is a shocking podcast. I could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> and so he becomes like almost notorious about this. And then they ban him basically from every golf course and from ever entering the golf, the um, the open ever again. So he decides that he's gonna put a, a cunning disguise on and then re-enter the open under a different name. And so um, then sort of you know comedy ensues where he tends to be a French Frenchman and to play in the, the open. Uh, but so that's basically the beginning of the story. And you see about his family life, you see his background, and you see how. Um, this sort of one misadventure um, that is actually quite inspiring for other people that you may be a hopeless no-hoper but that you don't give up hope and he has all these sort of like this sort of folk wisdom where he says things like practice is the path to perfection and he's in his own small way he's actually quite inspiring the fact that he is a complete no-hope he's like an Eddie the Eagle 
That, that, that was what I was going to say. He sounds like Golf's Eddie the Eagle, known more British story of glorious failure. Yeah. So I think it had this been an American story, he would then go on to actually win the Open or something. <laughs> um, but because it's a British story, you know, he never does. But you see what happens, how he can still inspire and he can still have a, a fulfilling life, even though he doesn't become this, this dream. He never gives up on his dream, even yeah. though... You know, we know as the British people know that he's never going to achieve this, but that doesn't stop us rooting for him all the same. And I think it just sort of shows you that that is like it had like British quirky feel all over it, and he's like a British quirky character sort of running through him like a stick of rock. It would just put him in half, and it would just be quirky, British, and you know oddball or something well, well yeah i mean that but that is just the way i mean when, when you look at some of the biggest british successes it's like 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 for instance full monty it's kind of like one of those things massive film massive film was broke all sorts of records and it's like do they actually succeed in the um, no. it's, yes. a, it's, it's a small victory it's kind of like a small victory and it's yeah but but anyway i think i think quite frankly it, it, you expect that in a British film. British yeah. films where, where people win in the end is like, oh, that's a bit too far fetched. Yeah, we're not really that bothered. And as and you could tell by during those films, the scenes, um, obviously the crowd instead of going, oh no, this guy's hopeless. The more shots he took to sort of part the ball, the more like, yeah, come on, yeah, come on. <laughs> they were really cheering him. And so the professional golfers, you know, sort of swinging away, were He's getting making a mockery of the game. And they were getting like, the polite applause, and they were, but the crowds were like loving him because he was, you know, a complete no hoper. But he was out there doing it, so they were just absolutely loving him. And you think you can see how, yes, people would. So, yeah, entertaining film, um, worth watching. My only sort of side drawback was again, it's typical British film, it's very sweary in places. Mm -hmm. And I get thinking, you know, well, can't you just say, oh, darn, occasionally? <laughs> That's not going to happen in this sort of film. So, can be a bit sweary um so i think some of the target audience like if you want like the silver pounds would probably love it but there's one guy who what he was watching it, he walked out so i think he just got a bit like too sweary for me and so he just sort of left then maybe that wasn't the reason but he didn't stay for very long he just got up after one point and went not for me and then he left yeah. so I, if you're aiming at the silver pound then i think sometimes you may need to tone down the um effing and jeff in a bit yeah. But I enjoyed it. Very good fun. Um, yeah, leaves you sort of feeling you know, sort of quite warm and fuzzy about it. So, but does, it's not elevated high art. So I would give it a three, a solid three. But it's a three film rather than um, anything more outstanding. I would say just on the walking out, I left a film not long ago, uh, Uncharted. Not because I didn't want to watch it, but because you know. Being grown-ups, obviously, we'll see anything. But we found it was so full of, you know, the target audience being like under 15, but also yeah. unvaccinated and unmasked. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, sat yeah. there and looked around and went, no, I'm really very comfortable with this. So we left and the lovely staff said, oh, you know, happy to, you know, return your, you know, your ticket price. And I went, we're on limitless. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a nice drink by the river. It is it is funny how having a limitless card does make you sort of like a bit blase about that. It's like I'm going to see a film. Oh, don't worry, it's fine. I'm going to see the. Essentially, you can teach, treat cinema like Netflix. Going ten minutes. Don't like this. I'm off. I'm going to go. <laughs> what's what's starting next? All right, we'll go to that one. I'd say in the time of COVID. Let's say if I can, if I don't feel you if if I don't feel safe. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. And I don't really, frankly, we want to, want to be yelled at by a bunch of 12 to 13 year olds just breathe that or just generally experience. Yeah. I, I still find it funny that the, the most packed screening I have been in since, um, since this whole pandemic started was a screening of Belfast. And it was a screening of Belfast yeah. with, with the target audience. So they, essentially, I was the youngest person in the screening. Uh, by by my, by my estimation, about fifteen years, I was the youngest person in that screening, and it was it's been the most 
full cinema up and I was like, what the heck is going on? Aren't you all supposed to be hiding at home? But they were all, they were <laughs> they were all sensible with it. All right, cool. So that's three stars for Phantom of the Open, Mike Ry- Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins. So, oh, you got to remind me when we finish doing all of our star ratings, we should talk about the Oscars. We should have a little quick chat about that. But anyway, um, now we go back to Netflix and Friends, specifically speaking, Disney Plus, and this is Turning Red, the latest Pixar movie that has been released directly onto Disney Plus and has bypassed cinemas, which may be a sign of things to come, but I really, really hope it isn't because Pixar hasn't had the last film Pixar had in cinemas was Onward, which was a good film, but that was, uh, but they since then they've had Luca, they've had Soul, and they've had now this and. They haven't been in cinemas, and I'm and it's a shame, especially with this film because this film remind this film is is the first time I think Pixar have done a well apart from Brave, apart from Brave, Brave was a period film, but um they this is set in 2002, so around about the time you and I met Holly, and it's set in a very very specific time frame of 2002 in Montreal, Canada. So the, everybody is walking around with brick phones and tamagotchis and all that kind of stuff, and it's and you can see that it's a little bit autobiographical from the director Domi Shi, who made this film because she is uh, Chinese Canadian, and you can see that this is kind of like her childhood that she's putting up on screen. So you meet May, who is a 13 year old who is very much. But, but it's a very confident 13 year old like she knows she's a geek she's happy with that she loves maths unapologetically she has a group of friends where they're like you know they they just sort of like they they know who they are they and they're fine with it they're not trying to be in with the cool kids in school they're not trying to be they know they're like no this is who we are this is what we're going to be and it, and she has this whole thing where she goes to school and she's like this bundle of energy and all that and at home she has um uh responsibilities being a chinese well being the daughter of chinese chinese immigrants and so they have this sort of temple and they talk about the family and they talk about the voodoo and the, the they talk about the legend of the family where there was a woman way in the past who wanted to defend the village and so the gods gave her the power to become a red panda a big massive red panda to defend her village and that's something that's been passed down through the ages to all yes kemi baba is here Okay, cool. <laughs> so, and it's and like it's been passed down through all the ages, through all the different women in the family. And at some point, at some point, around about her thirteenth birthday, around the thirteenth birthday, when she starts noticing boys and like hormones start raging and everything like that, she wakes up one morning after having a bit of a like a bit like I think you were talking about in the Phantom of the Open, a bit of like a fever dream where she sees red pandas everywhere, and she wakes up. And she's she's a red panda. She's turned into a red panda. She walks into the bathroom and she's like, Oh my god, no, what's going on? And she's trying to figure out what's going on. She can't figure it out. She's going like this 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 thing is going on, my body's changing, all that. And she manages to get herself to turn back into a into a human form. And she's like, Okay, good. So she goes to school, tries to keep everything under wraps because she's figured out that whenever she has a high emotional state, she turns into a red panda. So she tries not to have any emotions whatsoever. And um, which is a bit difficult because her mom follows her to school and things go in and then it, 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 it transpires that her mom and her dad know about this and they have been waiting for the day this will happen and she's like what the heck is going on and so you find out that this is something that goes on through the family and all the women in the family her mom her grandmom her aunts have all had this and it's teen- all about so what like teen wolf yeah there is a massive element of teen wolf i personally cannot i find it really difficult i find it hard I don't have to understand why no review I know has spoken about Teen Wolf now, and I and I, I think I can understand because it, this is a this is a woman's it's a female story. It is a it is a it, it is a Chinese story, so you don't want to sort of like try and take that away from it. But this story, the storyline and the story structure, to me, is very Teen Wolf. <laughs> There's a lot of Teen Wolf in it. Only, a, the, or, but. But it it becomes this whole thing about because obviously in case you haven't noticed it this red panda can be used as a metaphor for changes that young girls go through and the and it's all about okay so now that this red panda is here the rest of the film becomes a thing of what are you going to do about it are you going to embrace the panda or are you going to get rid of the panda and so it's a really good coming of age story I really really enjoyed it I thought it was really really good and I think one of the things that will stick with you especially if you were active and listening to pop music in 2002 is that there's there's a, there's a with her being a 13 year old girl she's really really into a boy band and this is a boy band called Four Town 
<laughs> as a boy band called Four Town, even though her mother says, but there's five of them, but they're called Four Town. <laughs> and Billie Eilish, Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas O'Connell, who wrote the last Born theme, have written some bo- have written some songs for this boy band. So the boy bands perform the songs in the film, and the songs are so on point. The songs could have been performed by Backstreet Boys or NSYNC and they will stick in your head they will stick in so we've been walking around my wife and I have been walking around since we watching going you're never not on my mind my mind my mind I'm never not by your side your side your side oh. <laughs> so yeah it is brilliantly made brilliantly realized I've never been a 13 year old girl but I can Imagine some of these things, and and this film gives you a little bit of an insight for well to people like me who've never been a thirteen year old girl. Gives you a little bit of an insight, and I just thought it was a I thought it was a blast. Thought it was a lot of fun, and I thought it was Pixar, Pixar, changing what they do slightly, giving some sort of like underrepresented voices a, a go, which done a little bit like with Soul as well that they do with Soul, but um, but still keeping that. Focus on story and keeping keeping that focus and keeping that keeping the focus on the heartstrings as well. So I would give Turning Red a four out of five. So if we carry on now and we go back to cinema and we go back to cinema and this is a film that we have been trying to that Sharon and I have been trying to review for a while, but we haven't been able to make it to the cinema. Well, neither were you. You're not allowed. It's, you know, you're, you're too young for the age rating. But this is Death on the Nile. And Holly, you have managed to see this. So can you just tell us a little bit about Death on the Nile and what your thoughts were? First off, it's an Agatha Christie. And second off, this is not its first incarnation. I'm not sure. It's, I think it's its second, but I'm not ruling out the possibility that there was. Peter Ustinov was. Yes, Peter Ustinov is the one that I think of. Well, second, but, second cinematic one. Yes, I'm not. I don't remember there being another cinematic one, but I don't like to rule these or a previous one, but I don't like to rule these things out. So the the classic principle begins. You have a, a beautiful, wealthy young woman who is out for a, out for a night in the town and meets her friend. Uh, who is desperately in love with her handsome boyfriend. And next thing we know, uh, we are off on the uh, wealthy young woman's honeymoon and she has married the friend's boyfriend. And it's all very beautiful, but obviously, and they are in Egypt, which is, you know, just wonderful. And But it's all a little bit fraught. The, the best friend shows up and appears to be following them around Egypt. There is an eclectic group of friends who have come to meet them there. And lo, we must speak to Hercule Poirot and seek his assistance because, you know, being followed around by, by the ex and this is all rather fraught. We don't quite know what's going on. It's very, very tense. So, you know, off they all head on a boat, as you do, which is a completely normal thing to do as part of your entire highly random sort of sporadic honeymoon and they head off down the Nile along along which point they stop at I'm going to say it's the pyramids or certainly some of the tombs and there is a falling rock that nearly takes out I don't know our uh, blushing bride uh, played by Gal Gadot who is yeah. just marvellous as she always does <laughs> and the um, and the uh, now husband is Army Hammer who of course has been somewhat cancelled during yeah 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 so, uh, during post-production of the film yeah yes. so he went from the trailers where initially you'd see him front and centre to ooh, turns out he's a bit sexual assaulty maybe yeah so uh, it turns out that he might be bad for the publicity of our film yeah, so there's a lot of background shots of him in the trailers <laughs> so so we're going to try and see if we can cut him out of the film as much as yeah possible. so they, they've done their best let's you know trim trim down the army hammerness okay so um, so okay but if this been an agatha christie obviously we're going to have right someone's going to die and there's yeah. going to be a bopper walking around and, and i give you well, it's more than one person who dies, but you know, I, I don't feel I'll be spoiling anything by saying. I think we all know that one in advance. Oh, because whom else do you kill? So Lo Acule steps in and the investigations begin. There are more 
there are twists and turns as there always are in Agatha Christie. But what's a little frustrating about it is that it takes on things. It, it adds more twists and turns than Agatha Christie intended. Obviously, Agatha Christie was writing at a significantly prior period and the world was quite different. But they, I can't quite figure out how I feel about it, but they, they managed to throw in gay relationships, highlighting, but only in, both in a very small way. And then the problems with, you know, racism in the early 20th century, but in a very small way. So it doesn't feel like they quite, they touch on things that are significant points, but don't, don't address, the, either simultaneously address them too much and yet not nearly enough. If that well, makes sense. Well, yeah, I think this is this is something that I always think is a bit of a dilemma uh, because Agatha Christie was written to be entertainment and uh, not particularly deep entertainment, not particularly supposed to do anything. So, if you're going to watch an Agatha Christie thing, you're going there for a bit of a turn your brain off mystery. You're not looking, you're not going there for like a big, um, big examination of social mores or big examination of the social world that you live in. That's not what you're going to have your thirsty for. But at the same time, there are problems in a, a, a when you're trying to tell an Agatha Christie story in the modern world, <laughs> especially, especially seen as one of her one of her stories, which is now called "And Then There Were None." Originally had a totally totally unpublishable title. So I guess it's one of these it's one of these problems where you're trying to you have troubles of dealing with the the history of the material. But at yes. the same time, it's supposed to be frivolous entertainment. And how do you sort of like strike that balance? It's and um, and how do you do it in a in a suitably modern and sensible way, so you don't suddenly have a terrifyingly white cast? Yes. Without not mentioning race, given the time period, but also not not mentioning it. So there's yeah. interesting balance, and you also there is a there is a, some sort of attempt in the new Agatha Christie's to be to try to address, to be a bit more complex than they were anyway, and to probably right some wrongs um, in, you know, relatively light but enjoyable writing. They come, that comes from a really laudable position, but I don't feel they, they don't quite do it. They don't do it sufficient justice, which I find is, let's say it, it's sort of, it, they, it, it, it becomes distracting. Yeah, it either they don't. If they did more, that would be better, or if they did less, that would be better. But somehow they don't quite. Given the seriousness of the subject matter that they're addressing, they don't quite get it right because it's not sort of in passing either. I can't exactly articulate the way that it's not. It doesn't. That that's something. That something is off. Yeah. It. it I'd hate to say distracting because that sounds like I'm trivialising the subject matter, and I'm not. But it just. But, but like, okay, okay. Here, how about this? Does it feel? Does it feel like maybe they're trivialising trivializing yeah, the subject matter? They're shoehorning things in. Yeah. That right. don't really. Yeah, they're just shoehorning oh, things in. All right. Um, okay, but, with, but with all, so with all that, how many stars would you give this? Well. I'm probably going to go to two, partly because whilst it was less than a two-hour-long film, it felt like we'd been there for a lifetime. Good I, God, that is. It bad. just dragged, and I couldn't believe it because I, I've seen that. I think it couldn't. It wasn't a patch on the used enough. That's part of the problem, and it's not a patch on the book, and it just feels long. I. I didn't like the previous film, The Murder on the Orient Express, that reason. I thought that it was just, to me, it felt interminably long when I was watching it in the cinema. It just seemed to go on and on and on. Um, so I wasn't a fan of the first film. I preferred it. I preferred that by some margin, actually, uh, which is probably a further damning indictment of, of Death on the Nile in that it, it looked more beautiful. Cinematography, it was spectacular, but oh, <laughs> I, 
it's it's actually impressive i stayed awake given my ability to fall asleep in things uh, all right cool it sounds like that might be the death of the heckle pyro extended universe yeah I think. <laughs> okay kenneth Branagh's heck pyro extended universe sunday right. afternoon with a copper <clears throat> okay cool so now we that is it for death of denial and now we go to uh, a final thing on Netflix, and this is actually on Netflix, with Bridgerton Season 2. Sharon, you went into this. You braved the adaptation of Julia Quinn's Magnus Opus. So tell us, Bridgerton Season 2, far away. Uh, my disclaimer at the beginning is I read these books in about 1990 when they first came out, when I was a much younger version of myself. And I can't remember much detail about the books, actually. <laughs> But anyway, this is book two, um, The Viscount Who Loved Me. Um, and that's the, the sort of overall title of the, of the series. Uh, basically, it's the Bridgeton family. There's seven siblings. Um, the first story was Daphne's story. And then each subsequent book features a different member of the family. And so this is based on, loosely based on book two, um, Anthony's story. And so Anthony is the eldest son. He's the Viscount. He's inherited the title when his father died very young. And as with all titled families at that point, um, whoever, whoever inherits the title, um, especially if it's entailed, which basically means that it goes to the eldest male relative, the eldest son, and then through the family line, in, and then it will go sideways to the cousin or whoever. It never goes to the girls of the family. It always goes to the eldest male son. And so basically you become, he inherited this Viscount the minute his father died, that happened when he was, eight, we believe it was like when he was 18 or 19 years old when his father died. And he immediately became the head of the family. And as soon as you become the head of a family, the, your emphasis is basically to marry and produce an heir, to, to secure the succession. So, Because the last thing any of these wealthy families want to do is for the wealth to leave their families and to be dissipated so it's now got and now Anthony's got that age where he's nearly 30 and the pressure's on him basically to find himself a wife to secure the inheritance yes left it a bit late generation of that so the eldest son can continue to pass on um this wealth and so Anthony decided that this season and the social season basically coincides with Parliament. So when Parliament is sitting, all the Lords come into London to sit in Parliament. And then the season basically is all the social events that keep the wives and the families entertained whilst Parliament is sitting. Mm. And then all the balls, there's a thing called the debut, which means that a young girl from a wealthy family and it's normally from the aristocracy, is presented to the Queen. They are then, they make their curtsy to the Queen. They are then officially out in society, which means they basically are then eligible to be married. Yeah. So it's telling the ton, which is basically the top 10,000, as it was called, but it's normally much smaller than that, um, is basically the social elite, the top 10% of the country, that these girls should have backgrounds, have breeding and they should have a dowry and the dowry basically means this is what you take with you when you get married you have a sum of money generally and the more money you have the more desirable you are but every now and then someone from a poorer background will be do well on the ton because they um are just are so damn out. beautiful they're so beautiful or they're singled out and in this case we've got our two heroines our two sisters who've come over from india they're their mother was estranged from their her maternal family, who are English aristocracy. They've come from India, where they live with their stepfather and her mother. And it's Kate and I forget the name of the other one, Edwina. And Edwina is making her debut because she's eighteen, and she's been presented to the Queen. And the Queen has, has described her as a diamond of the first water, which basically means she is the most beautiful girl presented that season. Okay, so far, Anthony, so so what happened to Daphne in season one? So, so that's Daphne what to Daphne Bridgerton in season one. Yeah, she don't you you see her occasionally because basically she's on her she's living with her duke on their estates and so her life is it just it loosely touches in this but you don't see a lot of Daphne you don't see anything of the duke but you do meet Daphne's son because he and then when there's a family party they they bring the baby out 
And so the Anthony has decided that he will who will marry the diamond of the first quarter of that season, whoever she may be, because he just wants a suitable wife who's pretty enough, obedient enough, so that he's young, will make a suitable wife and mother to his children. And he decides just like buying Edwina, a car. Edwina, she's the she's the date, she's the diamond of this season, I'm gonna marry her. And then obviously chaos ensues because even though he's determined to, to woo and romance Edwina, he's actually more naturally attracted to Kate, the older sister. And Kate is a bit more, she's older, she's 26. She's a little bit more sparky. She's a little bit more um, feisty and independent. So all the things he didn't necessarily want in a wife, but he can't have himself being attracted. And so age appropriate. Yes. She is a bit more age appropriate for him. Yes, that's it. More, more malleable, basically. Yeah, but that, but that is, uh, but, uh, but come on, Holly, that, that's, that's, that's embarrassing for the man. Absolutely. An age-appropriate woman. I mean, oh goodness, sake, being attracted to an age-appropriate woman. No, 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 no. What would, what will the papers say? What would Lady Whistledown say? Heaven oh. forbid. There's only four years between you, rather than twelve. So the the ensuing instead of being like the romance, marriage, honeymoon montage that lasts for the next four episodes, and then the conflict within the marriage. This is a basically a slower burn than the first season in which they're fighting their attraction to each other. He's involved with Edwina, so they can't really do anything about that attraction because it would be like cheating, which in romance novels is like a big no-no. There's like no cheating in romance novels. And so you then have this slow burn of like they're fighting their attraction, then giving in to their attraction at some point, I'm not going to tell you when, and then it all trying to be resolved in a way that doesn't really hurt anyone again, which is a big thing in romance novels. You can't break someone's heart in a romance novel unless they're a rotter, in which case it's fair game. But, you know, the good people have happy endings in romance. <gasps> so okay. you meet, your, you see all the other Bridgertons, you get a little bit of sauciness, you get a little bit of, you know, longing glances across a crowded dance floor. You get everything you would expect from sort of season, a, a Bridgerton season, but without some of the, you know, fewer yeah. nipples involved, shall we say. A bit less spotty. And a few less, yeah. Okay, okay so... Okay, let's let's go to the let's go to the the smut because that was that was something that everybody yelled about in the first um in the first um, season of Bridgerton. It was people were essentially describing this thing as Jane Austen, but with boobs and with sex and with bare bums, like you know, pumping away and all that. And I remember watching the first season of Bridgerton and getting to about episode four and thinking. This isn't that bad. What are they talking about? There isn't really that much. There is one particular episode of the first season of Bridgerton that, as that essentially, I think that one episode got Bridgerton the reputation. That's where the yes. there's one particular. So the I honeymoon so, montage. The honeymoon montage. That is that's the episode that got Bridgerton's reputation. So I don't. But I remember up until that point thinking I don't see what everybody was complaining about or what everybody's Hi. writing all those column inches about until that one episode, and um, so it seems like. They've done Bridgerton, but without that one episode this time round. Yeah, because where there's you get sort of certain tropes in again, there's works adapted from a romance novel. You with the nods to a romance novel is that basically in the Regency, you don't get too much sex in it before marriage because it would suggest that the woman is fast, i.e., she's not or, you know not the most or, so, or soiled. Yeah. Or so, soiled. And then, if she, if anything happened to, to stop them getting married, she would be ruined socially and she'd yeah. like be ruined financially in every way. Um, so they tend to romance novels tend to hold off. So the quicker they get married, the more amorous they can be. They they like have freedom to like be really amorous. And so because they weren't married or to the verge of being married, you don't you find that they sort of hold off on these the sort of the amorous encounters. Um, that's in certain romance novels. I mean, with bodice rippers, you can't tell. Sometimes <laughs> the bodice is called lady porn. So it depends if it's gone on like the lady porn side or whether it's gone down the classic bodice ripper. Um, or Lady oh. Chatterley's lover. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a. Yeah, so. Yeah, Julia Quinn, she steers the fine line between the lady porn and the, the classic bodice ripper. Oh, um, right. It's an interesting contrast, of course, to the reality, which was actually probably more licentious than uh, than many historical novels would imply. If one does a quick bit of checking in on much the Georgian period, I think as long as you, 
Well, a girl was, before a girl was, well, a girl, uh, the debutantes would be protected largely, but below that in, so, in social society, and then if you're married, as long as you produced an heir, then basically they would turn a blind eye to your indiscretions as long as you were discreet. discreet. But if you got caught out before you were married, then a young woman would be be ruined. And yeah. so the only path would be for her would be like for her family to seclude her, or she would end up in a book. Which, and, 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 and I was going to say it depends on her on who the you know the 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 other is as well, and if they're wealthy enough, then yeah, anything and, 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 and if they're prepared to do the right the right thing in inverted commas. Well, there's a, so, the mistresses of the of the Georges generally did remarkably well marriage wise, even though they in many yeah. cases had not been married in advance, and everybody was quite chilled out about. Yeah, it. Was children. yeah they. I think that certain if the, the the crime in the town was to be found out. So as long as you were discreet, you could more or less get away with anything. But if being found out was the biggest sin. It's like, how sloppy are you? It's still the case today. I mean, you can get away with a lot as long as you don't get found out. Yeah. All right. So, so I would take entertaining ripping yarns. I would class them as fantasy rather than historical dramas because obviously they have a colorblind casting which fits perfectly this sort of adaption because... You're not going to go into the politics of like the the, the politics of the East India Company and into the social economic factors of what how people made their money. Um, you're going to it's purely about look at all these fabulously wealthy people, the beautiful wearing beautiful clothes, doing you know jolly romantic things. So you look at it as a historic fantasy rather than let's look at a slice of life in 1814. So we don't get any references to the Pomeranian Wars in this. It does have one nice touch to it, though, on on its colourblind casting is Queen Charlotte, who was, who some, that that there is a, um, a a, a fact, I can't think of the word, historical book about the fact that she may have been um, England's first uh, black queen. Yeah. On the basis that her, her, if you look at her, well, there are suggestions if you look at her portrait, and her style, there are suggestions that her, her physical features look like she might not be, I don't know what the word be, 100% Caucasian. <laughs> Stupid. Um, oh, yes, that's right. We that's get right. everywhere. Not, not you... totally Caucasian, damn it. But a bit of her down. family. There's, there's, some, there's some interesting family lineage. Uh, though there's actually a, a, an earlier point with uh, Philippa of Hainault, who was the wife of Edward III, just as a complete throwback, and the su- suggestion that Edward, the um, Black Prince, might not have just been called that because of the colour of his armour. So there's a bit of you know, history research available to those who are, have time on their hands. Yeah, yeah, I would say, as I, as I was saying, you cannot keep us down, you cannot keep us out, we will find our way in! <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So how many stars right. would we give Bridget of Season 2, Sharon? Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to give it um, a high three stroke four. I don't know if it's quite a four um, because it's the, you know, the it, it, but it's, as a piece of good entertainment, I'll say it's definitely a high three because you yeah. can be you're entertained for the the sort of eight episodes. I mean, yeah, there's nods towards the future. So then I know there's two more series guaranteed. So because I've read the books, I know that we've already met one of the two of those future spouses. So we already know that they'll be back because they've already introduced those characters who then go on to be spouses of other Bridgertons. So, oh, look at Sharon! Look at Sharon doing all of Netflix's work for them, putting a tease in, going, "Oh, go watch season two because you might." Now we're going to be like, "Ooh, who's going to be the spouse? Who's going to be the next spouse? Oh, who's Colin going to marry?" I think that's so, really well, obvious. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we certainly meet um, one of the. Yes, I'm not going to say who's, but. So, <laughs> If they, they, because in the books it goes after Daphne, it goes like Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Eloise. So they may not follow that in the series because obviously Eloise and Benedict are much more popular characters. May and they may leave sort of Colin till last. Possibly. I don't know. Well, yeah. Well, we'll we'll see what happens with them. All right, cool. So we are running yeah, out so of time. A good solitary. Good solitary. Oscar talk. We, we're running out of time. So now the question we have to ask is Holly, Sharon. We have totted up the scores, and who do you think has won this week? Netflix or cinema? I think it was a heat again. Yo, oh, Sharon, you, Sharon, Sharon thinks it's a dead heat. Kemi, oh, Kemi, think, Kemi thinks that's oh, no, laughable. I don't think it is because we had two. So I think home screening one. Sorry, I was a bit like, I missed the two. 
from the okay. cinema. So I think we have got a, a home screening one this week. I agree. You would be right with a total of 10 points. 10 points out of a possible 15. Netflix and Friends have won it. And cinemas have gotten... Uh, it was looking like it could be neck and neck. It was going to come down to the final round. And like the final round, cinema still had a chance until Death on the Nile came in there and very appropriately holds the cinema ship below the waterline. So, the Nile has caused death. And, and once that happened, I don't think there was any way back for cinema. All right, cool. So that is it for, for our reviews this week. And now I'm just going to say if we can take five quick minutes and say, so do you think, after Cheryl, we were talking about the Oscars last week and how nobody pays any attention to the Oscars anymore and how they don't really mean that much and the, and how the Oscars... Hang on a second. What is going on? Okay, I'll take that. I've got it. Thank you. <laughs> and we're talking about how um, the, the Oscars were freaking out because... All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question. Let you guys talk and I mute myself. <laughs> the Oscars were freaking out because nobody was watching, but now they've got the they've got their wish because everybody has been talking about the Oscars since the weekend. So but what not about necessarily you guys? Who won them. Not not necessarily about the films, but then again, I don't think that the Oscars care that much about people worrying about the films because everything that they've been talking about is not that. Oh, nobody's paying attention to the films. All they cope, all they were talking about was the ratings and how we don't have. A enough ratings our ratings are not good enough and now you know that they're going to have high ratings next year because people are going to sort of like tune and go anything could happen is the oscars anything could go down what do you guys reckon about this when i first saw the footage i mean i didn't see it initially i thought it looked a bit like a setup and then when you see the second sort of exchange you think no no, no those are not those are not happy eyes this is not a setup so part of me thought was a bit cynical about it um and then i thought no, he's obviously there's something else going on here. Um, I think it was the wrong thing to do. I think it was inappropriate. I personally would be a, would would put, have given sanctions about that, thinking we cannot condone that sort of behaviour. So I personally would be on the side of I would even probably go as far as to take his Oscar back. But that's just me. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would know how to respond in terms of Oscarness, but I thought it was. Um, it was an expletive move on both sides. Um, Chris Rock was out of line. I mean, that's you don't, you know, it's it's fundamentally it's disability. You don't want disabilities. That just you know, not pleasant. On the other hand, responding to that by hitting someone, not really appropriate. So I can follow the logic, but not the action if that makes sense. I can appreciate being angry for your your significant other, but also it's about her. It's her call as to whether or not she's upset about it. It's not, did she ask anybody to go and hit anybody else for it? Not that I saw. So sort of, you know, butt out. It's for her to be angry. Yeah, and... Her yeah, to and... Hit Chris Rock if that's what she feels strongly about, which she didn't do. Yeah, well, uh, and I think that we need to talk about it just because we talk about films and this is something that is film adjacent. But quite frankly, I don't particularly want to talk about it. <laughs> I would say more importantly, I was so pleased with the Oscars that Coda got, which I thought was stunning. Well, yeah, I, I think because obviously that, that is the big problem here is that no one's talking about the films. There were such good decisions. And I loved the way that Dune did with its um, with all, all of the tech stuff. Okay. Thrilled. I yeah. loved you. I, I would I would say I would say that Dune won the Oscars that it should have won. So which, which is which is the technical Oscars. The technical Oscars, Dune won the technical Oscars that it should have won. Because um I, I think if Dune had won Best Picture, I would have been a little bit up in arms because I'm like, it's technically excellent, but I'm sorry, if you haven't read the books, that is a stupidly difficult story to follow because they, they cut a whole bunch of stuff out. So uh, and that's, that's still my problem with Dune. As much as I enjoyed it, I was like, I don't think it makes sense for anybody who hasn't read the books. There's just a whole bunch of... of there's a whole bunch of the world that has been cut out to make this thing fit into a filming filmic runtime. Yeah. So we back and forth over this a number of times. Yeah, yeah. And oh. and so so if you get onto the films and uh, look at that, the the best actress for Jessica Chastain, I was a bit eye raising on that and I just feel like I feel like that sort of indicated to me that I feel like there wasn't really that much of a standout this year. So it I became not seen that. 
Well, um, I've not seen the, the what's it the, the eyes of Tammy Faye. Tammy Faye. Not watched it yet. Yeah, it's it. it's it's just been released on Disney Plus. I will watch it shortly. It's just been released on Disney Plus, so you can see that. I've seen The Lost Daughter. Olivia Coleman is good in that, but mm, don't don't know. So, I've heard good things. Yeah, The Lost Daughter is is. I mean, Sharon, you were talking about Dirigible Season Two being a bit of a slow burn. The Lost Daughter is definitely one of those. But I think I think The Lost Daughter. I know I've watched it and I haven't reviewed it on the show yet. But I think it would. I think Sharon, you would like it. Okay. I think, think you would like it. So yeah, all in all, I think. So there's a bit of me that thinks that or part of the reason why we are talking a lot more about the slab than about the films not even just because that was a shocking thing that has gotten it's also because i still maintain that it's not really a banner year oscars wise okay. or films wise like power of the dog which i know was was up on there i've started watching that on netflix and i feel like in the first 15 minutes i've seen the whole film I think I, I I feel like in the first fifteen minutes of the Power of the Dog, I'm like, okay, I know how the, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. I know what's going to happen, and I haven't really. I got distracted, and I haven't felt the compunction to go back and watch the rest of the film since. I've yet so, to be bothered. <laughs> and in years past, it's always been that after a film wins an Oscar, there's suddenly a massive uptick at the cinema, or it gets a re-release at the cinema, or suddenly it gets a big boost in that suddenly loads of people end up watching those films. And yeah, I'm not uh, that's what they're all I'm, I'm fully expecting that all of a sudden Apple Plus gets a lot more subscribers. Uh, so I guess so because they're, they're really pushing it. Once you go into your streaming, whatever, there's a thing going on saying, Coda, best picture winner. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. <laughs> I'd say it's worth watching. Now, I did buy because the only way to get... Um, uh, what was it? Um, uh, King Richard was by buying it off Apple. Oh yeah, to watch it. So bought it off Apple in order to be able to watch it because. Yeah. And I have to say, I you know saved for another day, but I did think it was I did think it was very good. But yeah, I thought, I thought I, it, was... it deserved to be it deserved to be up there rated, but I'm not sure that it was. So we went back to, I'm not sure, I think the, the year was a little slim pickings, and in other years it wouldn't yeah. be it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, when you look at everybody else that he was up against for best actor, I'm like, yeah, why not him? So it's, there, wasn't, there wasn't anybody else that I thought, no, no, they were robbed. <laughs> There's yeah, nobody else. Good. That he was very good. Yeah, he was he was very good. I think the other two nominations, other two films that he was nominated for, when he was nominated for Ali, when he was nominated for Pursuit of Happiness, I think he was probably better. Um, but and they are better films than King Richard. But it's you, it's what you have. And uh, just one final thing I'll say before we sign off: when it comes to taking his Oscar back, that I think is just dumb. I, <laughs> I, I honestly think taking his Oscar back is just because if you want to look through the list of people who have won Oscars and like you have Roman Polanski, you have Harvey Weinstein, you have all these people. And if they still have the Oscars, because at, at, there's, and this is where you, you get to a whole thing of divorcing the art from the artists. And it's like, have they done good work? Have they done award winning work? Let's judge the work and not the person. But then that is another that is a, that's a, that's a, what's that word? An ant mine? No. Anyway, it's a naughty situation that we, we could be here all day about. But yeah. let's just go, let's just go with say, well done, Netflix, you won this week. <laughs> until, until, next week until next week, when I might be seeing Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, sooner you than me. Yeah. So until next week, when I shall be seeing a Sonic Hedgehog two, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye for me. And goodbye for me. Thank you very much for joining us, and Holly, for your first goodbye from me. That was excellent. Thank you. Very I much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.